So investors now are starting to look for ways to go on offense. I think people expect 2024 to be a transitional year. Good morning, and you are listening to Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. It's January 22nd. We have Ron Dickerman on with us today. He's the founder of Madison International Realty, a New York-based firm that invests in real estate assets by taking minority stakes in properties. Right. So basically, Madison swoops in when another investor is looking to exit. And over the last 20 years, his firm has spent more than $17 billion investing in real estate across the country. Our conversation is pretty wide-ranging, but we spent a lot of time talking about office market struggles, obviously no shocker there, the wall of maturities that is coming up, and bank exposure to troubled commercial real estate loans, and also why he really likes cold storage and data centers right now. So that was interesting. Mm, Yeah, we haven't touched on that in a bit. So a lot of ground covered, sounds like. But first, let's tackle the news of last week. Distress, it continues. Every week, it seems. Let's start with San Francisco. Big news out of the city on Thursday. Brookfield foreclosed on 2,150 apartment units across the city with a $464 million bid. It was the largest apartment transfer in the last decade. Our senior reporter in San Francisco, Emily Landis, was on the scene. She covered the auction, and it happened in two tranches. But here's a clip. And the opening bid is $386,250,000. Are there any further bids? Second time, I have an opening bid of $386,250,000 from the beneficiary. Are there any further bids? For the third and final time, an opening bid of $386,250,000 for the beneficiary. Are there any further bids? Okay, so it sounds like no other firm showed up to the bid. Nope. Brookfield was the sole bidder on both pools. And the foreclosure was strange because Brookfield actually wasn't the original lender on the portfolio. I feel like you have backstory that you could share. Yeah. So Veritas, the original owner of the 76 buildings, they defaulted on $900 million in loans tied to the properties uh, in 2022 and 2023. Those loans were originally from Goldman Sachs. But after the default, Goldman put the loans up for sale. And then Brookfield teamed up with Ballast Investments to buy the debt. That deal closed late last year. So our foreclosure was still scheduled and Brookfield never canceled it when they acquired the debt. Mm. Okay, so because Brookfield owned the debt, it could foreclose and make, we talked about this, but it's called a credit bid, right? Yeah. So it's an amount equal to the debt owed. It's a little bit unclear, though, considering Brookfield bid $464 million, And we know that the total debt due was $900 million. So either they got a really good discount on the debt, but we still don't really know what they paid. Either way, they got a good discount on the properties. So do you think their plan was to own the whole time? It sounds like it. I mean, you know, the fact that they were very willing to foreclose, says a lot. And a Brookfield representative told Emily that the company now wants to invest, quote, substantial additional capital into the properties. 
Okay, another distress event. This one's out of New York. So a special servicer on Blackstone's $308 million loan that's backed by 1740 Broadway put the property up for sale and reportedly at a 50% discount. Wow, big discount. The different strategies that lenders and special servicers take are really interesting to me. We have receiverships, loan sales, fire sales, foreclosures, (laughs) and it really seems to be case by case, kind of depending on what the lender is comfortable with. Definitely. Yeah, I know we did that episode on CMBS with Dan McNamara, but I do think we could dig in a bit further, maybe in an upcoming episode. Absolutely. So this has been playing out for a while with Blackstone. Blackstone defaulted on the loan almost two years ago. It handed over the keys to the special servicer in March 2022, but it is a CMBS deal, which is probably why the special servicer hasn't foreclosed on the property yet. Those deals, you know, typically go on for a while as far as negotiations. They have to bring in the bondholders, et cetera. But CMBS investors are not in the business of owning property outright. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess in the case of Blackstone, whoever buys the debt could do what Brookfield did with the Veritas portfolio and then foreclose and own the assets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one potential route. One more bit of troubling news. Do you want to talk about what happened in L.A. last week? Yeah. So big news out of L.A., Neil Schechter. He was once a massive landlord in L.A. He runs WS Communities, very prominent on the West Side especially. He lost about half of his rental and development portfolio after defaulting on about $1.1 billion in debt. It's a lot. So how did Brutal. he... How did, Yeah. How did he lose it? So he signed deeds in lieu of foreclosure on almost 30 properties. A handful of them were development sites, so land he planned to build apartments on. And Madison Realty, not to be confused with Madison International Realty that, you know, we're speaking to today, completely (laughs) different firm. But Madison Realty, run by Josh Segan, scooped up the bulk of the properties. He had Schechter and WS Communities had just over $1 billion in unpaid debt for Madison. Lightstone, also based in New York and a local lender, Henke Capital, also took control of a handful of parcels, also through Deeds and Lou. Okay. So he walks away without the properties, but he's also not on the hook for the debt? Right. So Deeds and Lou are a lost resort here, but it is an alternative to foreclosure. It's often cheaper, less time consuming, but it does mean that the borrower on the debt loses the properties entirely. I'm sure there's more to come on this, but most of this boils down to rising rates. A source told me that the majority of his loans were floating rate. So once the Fed started hiking rates, some of his loans went from 7.5% to roughly 12%. And that's over the course of a year. Wow. Also, 7.5% is like a pretty high place to start from, don't you think? Yeah. A lot of them were kind of junior loans or mezzanine financing, which typically Mm, have higher interest rates to begin with. So, you know, he was paying a lot from the outset. That's what my source told me. Got it. But it's interesting that multifamily distress has really hit. This is, you know, the first time that we've really seen a big multifamily owner grapple with serious distress in L.A. We've talked about it in the Sun Belt a lot, but it's interesting that it's come to come to other markets, too. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco also with the Veritas portfolio. Absolutely. Okay, so turning away from distress entirely, a penthouse at New York's second tallest tower just sold for $115 million. Luxury buyers are clearly not tied to mortgage (laughs) rates. 
And I actually just learned this, but this is Central Park Tower. I didn't realize that it was actually taller than one Vanderbilt, um, you know, considering it's a residential tower. Yeah, yeah. So Central Park Tower at 217 West 57th Street. The tower's developer, Gary Barnett, sold the unit and said it was the most expensive residence his firm, Extel, has ever sold. It's also worth noting that the penthouse did have an initial ask of $175 million, which then dropped to about $150 million last year. Again, it traded for $150. Yeah, so we've spoken about aspirational pricing before, but it is worth mentioning again that a lot of times, you know, there will be kind of a really hefty price tag attached to key luxury properties, whether that's for press or they really do think that they're going to sell it for that amount. I'm not entirely sure, but, you know, you then do see when the property finally goes into contract, you do see a significant reduction there. Mm -hmm. You know, still an impressive price tag. And I'm sure we'll be touching on more aspirational pricing in the future, um, possibly as, you know, we track what mortgage rates do this year. But for now, let's jump to our conversation with Ron. Ron Dickerman. I'm the president and founder of Madison International Realty. So I understand that Madison has this niche of being a secondary investor. First, can you talk about what that means? And then second, and we can answer this in a separate question, but how it helps existing investors who want to get out of an investment. So a secondary investor decidedly does not mean that we invest in secondary markets, uh, quite the contrary. Uh, what we effectively do is uh, provide liquidity to existing investors in commercial real estate transactions who are looking for an early exit strategy. And to put it very simply, the real estate business, commercial real estate in the United States and other markets we invest in the UK and Europe is very, very large, very capital intensive. And typically these properties are bought with partners and some type of a joint ownership structure. And yet we know that real estate is a liquid as an asset class and the world is cyclical. Um, we've lived through COVID, we've lived through Ukraine, we've lived through interest rates. And uh, at the end of the day, some investors are struggling with the lack of distributions, increased borrowing costs, and they're looking to monetize their ownership stakes in commercial real estate transactions. We provide an exit strategy through purchasing those interests as principals. What made you decide to take this strategy on? It was uh, 22 years ago when I started Madison from scratch. And the idea was to try to do something differentiated, a needed service in the marketplace that didn't otherwise exist. So this goes all the way back to sort of 2002 or so, uh, actually a predecessor firm uh, to Madison started in 1996. And real estate was becoming a global asset class with money starting to flow around the globe, yet it's the ultimate local business. And like I said, it is a liquid and cyclical. So if you're going to try something as an entrepreneur, why not try something that hasn't been done before that you think is a needed service in a very, very large marketplace? And the good news is that thesis turned out to be true. So on that note, you know, we're in a time where many investors want to get out of office properties. Office is an asset class that has been hit very hard by remote work and a lack of return to office. Tell me about how you're thinking about the office market and are you seeing this as an opportunity right now to enter while others are exiting? I'm going to sort of pop the bubble just a little bit, which is we're being super cautious about investing in office. And what we're finding 
generally speaking, is I can't remember a time in, say, 35 years of investing in real estate where asset class performance has been so differentiated. And it may have started with COVID, with hybrid work, you know, video conferencing, and now the struggle to return to the office. But there's something bigger going on, which is human beings changing their behavioral patterns and how they live, work, play around commercial real estate assets. So take New York City, where I'm sitting right now. New York City is a vibrant metropolitan area with young people. If you go to the restaurants, they're overflowing. Multifamily is booming. Rents have been rising, especially during COVID. It's a place where people want to be, but not everybody wants to be in the office. Um, so one of the things that we've done is we've adjusted what we call our sector tilts to be reflecting human beings and how they're behaving around physical assets. And we're also focusing on the intersection between real estate and technology. And I think that's something which is coming into play right now. Not so much thinking about prop tech, maybe thinking a little bit about AI, but the fact of the matter is things like data centers, cold storage, single family homes for rent, human beings are changing their need for physical assets. So we still have an appetite to invest in office. That was the question you asked. Uh, but one of the things that we're focused on is the bifurcation between class A and class B. We think class A is where is where it's going on in office because the people that want to be there are willing to pay premiums. But class B is really struggling. Borrowing costs, cap rate expansion, lack of rental growth, vacancy, shadow, you know, sublet space creates a lot of complexity in valuing class B office buildings. And as you, as you probably know, there's a big chatter about conversion. Um, our view is that's a little overblown, converting, you know, sort of a deep floor plate office building into residential without light and air is challenging to do. And the economics would require you to pay almost nothing for the physical asset because you're talking about land value at, at, at that point in time. So we think that the game of potential office conversions is a little bit overdone. So it sounds like you're being, and this is, I think, across the board, being a little bit more selective and you have to be more selective about the type of office. You know, pre-pandemic, I think that people were willing to invest in class C, B, A, you know, because there was demand across the board. Yes, yes, that's, that's exactly right. So I also wanted to talk about the capital markets for a second. We've heard a lot and we write a lot about this wall of maturities. There's an estimated $540 billion in commercial mortgage lo loans coming due in 2024. That's according to TREP. And many of those loans are tied to office. Can you talk about how owners are grappling with this right now? It's, it's a big deal and, and it impacts owners in many ways. Obviously, interest rates have risen. Coverage ratios have been adjusted by lenders. There's a lack of liquidity in the debt market. So lenders are not nearly as aggressive as they used to be, especially in asset classes like office. So if you have a maturing loan, odds are you borrowed three, five, seven, ten 10 years ago in a lower interest rate environment. So you're being hit with these new stringent underwrite, uh, underwriting requirements. Odds are you borrow less money. You might have to make an amortization payment, putting in equity into the property to amortize down the loan. The lender might want reserves and, and other things. And in the worst case scenario, as cap rates have risen, values have fallen, some loans may not be able to be rolled over at their current principal level. So there's a lot of turbulence in the debt maturity space. 
It doesn't seem to me that there's sufficient capital to fill that void right now. There's a lot of people looking at it. Lenders are thinking about extensions, you know, blend and extend. They're looking for their pound of flesh, which is increased borrowing costs and points, but it's a turbulent market for sure. And I think it's going to be an area of opportunity for commercial real estate investors, depending on their risk profile. Can you expand on that a little bit? That's, I think, one of the big questions that faces real estate investors today, which is 2023 was a very slow year. There was a significant dearth of transaction volume, loan activity. It may have been down by as much as two thirds to three quarters, you know, versus the prior year. Investors put differently were effectively sitting on their hands. So investors now are starting to look for ways to go on offense. I think people expect 2024 to be a transitional year. I think it's going to get better as the year goes on. It seems like the Federal Reserve has changed their narrative to talking more about rate cuts. The question is, when is that going to happen? And that's sort of on everyone's mind. And the 10-year has been slowly declining. You know, it was 5% just, just before Thanksgiving. You know, now it's sort of bouncing around 4%. And actually, it's gone under 4% for several days over the last couple of weeks. So that narrative is starting to feel better. But I think investors are still looking for premium rates of return if they're looking to deploy capital in 2024. So what I meant about risk return is where do you feel comfortable taking risk? If you're going to invest a dollar, are you prepared to buy a 50% vacant office building, fix up the lobbies and hope for some leasing? Or are you willing to step in and make an amortization payment on a maturing loan, like I said before? And the question is, what rate of return are you looking to earn on that capital? At a minimum, you know, what we're seeing in the marketplace is expected rates of return are in the mid-teens mm. on a levered basis, which is a much higher rate of return than most investors would have accepted investing in commercial real estate before the interest rate cycle. And um, so I think that just goes to show risk premiums are significantly higher. Cost of capital is significantly higher versus where we were before. Your, your question revolved around the opportunity for maturing debt, the wall of maturities, how does that look? I think anyone looking to, to take on new capital from an equity investor or to solve an amortization problem that they may have in one of their assets has to think about giving up a cost of capital that's kind of in that zip code. I wanted to talk about preferred equity and mezzanine financing because I've seen over the last year that a lot of investors have jumped into this space because of the high rates of return and the rise in interest rates. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether you're still seeing that? Yeah. So similar to what I'm describing, and I would say preferred equity and MES financing tend to sort of go hand in hand. One is a, obviously an equity structure and, and the other is, is a, a tranche of debt, but they're sort of at the same place in the capital structure, looking for a very similar cost of capital. And I think there's going to be a lot of that. I think that is a way for investors to play this opportunity is to be basically focused on gap financing. So on it's probably somewhere between 60 to 80%, 70 to 90% on the capital stack. And the fact that borrowers you know, need outside equity infusions, be it preferred equity or mezzanine financing to help them roll over debt or to plug holes that senior lenders are not willing to advance. Do you think that's going to pose a problem for some borrowers in the future that become leveraged with very expensive debt, that preferred equity or mezzanine? Yes, I think that there will be 
friction and, and tension based on, on what you just said, because not everyone's going to be able to accept the cost of capital that the market is demanding. So what do you think is going to be a catalyst for getting lenders back into the office market? Stability, equilibrium, some transparency on cap rate, you know, cap rate capitulation, where do these markets ultimately settle, space utilization from existing tenants. You know, one of the things to keep in mind is, for better or for worse, COVID was only a few years ago, and it changed, you know, the behavioral patterns of office tenants and office occupants, but leases can go on three, five, seven, and 10 years. So it literally may take that long for equilibrium to be reached in the commercial office markets. A little bit what happened in the retail markets with the birth of Amazon and home delivery and, you know, internet penetration. It took years for equilibrium to be reached in the retail business. And one of the things that's quite interesting is if you walk up and down the streets of Manhattan, there are less vacant retail spaces than there used to be when you used to walk up Third Avenue and Fifth Avenue. Retail has started to figure it out. Rents have fallen. New formats of retail stores have started to emerge. And there's been a little bit of an evolution or a metamorphosis with regard to the retail business, which has found an equilibrium. And people are starting to think about investing in retail today. It's caught, in a, little, it's caught a little bit of a footing. And from, from our perspective, that you know, type of you know, workout and equilibrium may take years to find, but it will happen in the office space. It'll be take the form of lower rents, higher cap rates, and potentially some, some conversion of class B office into residential. So really just like sorting out, I think there needs to be like some settling, it sounds like. So I wanted to talk about bank exposure to commercial real estate. 2023, you know, obviously with the collapse of Signature, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank being bought by JP Morgan, you know, there's still a lot of concern around exposure to commercial real estate loans. How do you see that affecting the market going forward? I think lenders are being super cautious. I think they're willing to lend to other asset classes, industrial, multifamily, retail is on the bubble a bit, office is super cautious. And of course, there's a whole slew of alternative real estate asset classes, but they're also struggling with their own balance sheets and their own liquidity. You know, there's many lenders that have problem loans with underlying office buildings along the lines of what, of what we've talked about. So I, I think I can't remember a time where there's been less liquidity brought about by commercial real estate lenders. And there's a bit of a shadow lending community now, which is brought about by specialty lenders, credit funds, hedge funds. Some of the large private equity firms are raising dedicated credit funds in order to go out and plug these gaps. It's not all MES and preferred. Some of it is actually first mortgage loans that they're making against conventional real estate that otherwise would have been provided by commercial banks. So you've obviously had failure of the you know, regional banks that have also come out of the marketplace. And all that business is not being substituted by the money center banks like Citibank, JP Morgan, and others. So it's gonna take a little while for the, for the lending markets to come back to equilibrium because there needs to be more recovery in the valuations and the collateral value of these commercial lenders. What types of lenders or banks do you expect to see the most pain here or the most exposed? Regional lenders, yeah, with um, substantial office exposure. 
And, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is sort of geographic exposure that some cities like San Francisco, downtown Los Angeles are really struggling. Other cities like Miami and Nashville and Austin, uh, maybe Boston, Massachusetts are, are doing better just based on population trends and the occupancy rates. So at the end of the day, it is going to be the tale of different cities, different experiences and where these regional lenders have exposure. So what asset classes, you mentioned data centers, hold storage earlier, but what are some of the asset classes that you're excited about, either in the U.S. or I know that you work globally too? Yes, we also invest in the U.K. and Europe. We're opening an office in Singapore. We'll be investing in Asia over the next few years. We're very convicted about single-family homes for rent versus multifamily. For the first time in many, many years, there's more multifamily units being developed in the United States than single-family homes. We think the U.S. is undersupplied by between three and four million units of single family homes. The millennials are finally getting married and having children and they're forming households because of lending restrictions you know, on first mortgage loans and the dearth of supply. It's hard for them to qualify to buy single family homes. Some of them are renters by necessity, not by choice, and they'd rather rent a single family home than a multi-unit dwelling. And we're also seeing in our own portfolio, because we own both, is we're seeing much more aggressive rental growth in single family homes than we are in multifamily units. So we, we think that's clever and it's almost a perfect investment thesis of rising demand in the face of constricted supply. We're also very focused on cold storage. That's one of our best ideas in the industrial space. It's a subsector of industrial. Class A industrial, the big bomber warehouse buildings are a bit overbuilt. We like class B and sort of last mile distribution. And we've been working with some sponsors and partners in that regard. But I would say our best idea of all in that sector is cold storage, that your home delivery of grocery got a big shot in the arm during COVID. I know in my own household, my wife used to insist on going to the grocery store to buy the raspberries. Only she could pick out the best raspberries at the grocery store. Now she takes out her iPad and she clicks on a button and we have raspberries in our front door in about two and a half hours. So that story has been repeated a hundred million times around the United States and in Europe. And what it does is it puts stress on the cold storage food chain. You need cold storage closer to the suppliers and the end recipients. And that's a very underexposed and undersupplied niche of the industrial business. So we like it. We're investing in it aggressively. We're putting it into our funds and we're doing it globally. So in the U.S. and parts of Asia. And then maybe the third thing, which I mentioned, is data centers. Data usage is exploding. We think with AI, it's going to increase exponentially. And we think that data centers are real estate. So we've been investing in that sector for several years. It's been working out very well for us. I'm fascinated by cold storage for that reason that grocery delivery seem to have taken off. But it also seems like such a capital intensive business, right? There's so much energy that has to go into keeping, you know, it's basically like a giant freezer. So different from industrial, which is just like a big kind of box that obviously tenants build out. But I think last question, um, have you seen your investor pool in your funds kind of shift over the last couple of years? Yes. We've been raising your private equity funds for 22 years. The interesting thing is our investor base has become truly global. I would say Asia is becoming a bigger and bigger piece of our underlying you know, investor base. This may sound you know, a little trite, but I actually think that 
investing is the great equalizer that obviously the world is turbulent. There's a lot of things going on that are troublesome in our world, uh, you know, geopolitics, politics in general. I, I take on the responsibility among and with some of my colleagues of traveling around the world and, and meeting our investor clients. And, you know, what I'm getting to is they all want the same things just to oversimplify great relationships with people they trust, where they have a reasonably good chance of earning, you know, significant returns over long periods of time. Doesn't matter what religion, you know, what language, what country, how they dress, they all want the same things. And I actually like that. I find that to be a, such a simple way of looking at the world. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to Kyle Matthews, the brains behind commercial brokerage firm Matthews Real Estate. Tune in then.